Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, join Loganberry's Maisha Hedden in discussion with former staffers Margie Adams and Susan Patrone as they examine Britt Bennett's best-selling novel, The Vanishing Half, a book that explores racial identity, community, and the caustic effects of prejudice through several generations. The Vanishing Half can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links included in the episode description. This discussion was originally broadcast live on June 17, 2020 on Loganberry Books' Facebook page. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So, to introduce the book, this is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. It is about... Uh, Desiree and Stella Vignes, who are identical twins, um, but after growing up together in a small uh, Southern Black community and running away at age 16, it's not just the shape of their daily lives that is different as adults, it's everything. Their families, their communities, their racial identities. So 10 years later, Desiree lives with her Black daughter in the same Southern town she once tried to escape, and Stella secretly passes for white and her husband, uh, who is also white, knows nothing of her past. Still, um, even separated by so many miles and just as many lies, the fates of the twins remain intertwined. What will happen to the next generation when their own daughter's stories intersect? So this book weaves together multiple strands and generations um, of this family from the 1950s to the 1990s, uh, going from the Deep South to California. Britt Bennett produces a story that as a brilliant exploration of the Marianne issues of race um, and consider the lasting influence of the past as it shapes a person's decisions, desires, expectations, and explores some of the multiple reasons um, and realms in which a person sometimes feels pulled to live as something other than their origins. I read it months ago and I was just so excited and intrigued by its contents that I wanted to share in that feeling and discuss it with others. So firstly, simply, I think it's an incredible book. Um, And I guess I will discover what my colleagues think shortly (laughs) of it. But secondly, I don't think it's an accident that it has become the number one New York Times bestseller right now or indie bestseller. This book, while a story about Black women centrally, is also a story about how we deal with trauma and guilt, which is also important to think about during our present context, especially regarding um, how we cope with uh, pain in our past, generational trauma, and environmental factors and how we grew up and our roots, and how outside factors weigh in on everyone in our decision-making processes. So the first thing I think I want to ask Maisha is, what do you think the appeal of this novel is? Um, We spoke briefly about how it might be considered the Michael Jackson of Yes, I do. I think this (laughs) is like... So what do you mean by that? I think it's, I think it is the sort of Michael Jackson or Drake of novels for the reasons that you were talking about (laughs) that she puts in race, color, LGBT violence. It's sort of like a potpourri of what's going on 
um, right now in the United States. And the other reason why I think it's a crossover novel, and I will defer to my my favorite white friend, Susan, on this one, is that <laughs> even though... <laughs> <laughs> I do. I have white friends. Um, that even though the main characters are two African-American women, although another major character does come into play who's um, a white woman, I think that the theme of belonging, feeling like an outsider, wanting to fit in, resonates across racial lines. So, you know, in the book, in the novel, the two girls go to New Orleans, but they're country bumpkins. They don't really fit in there. Um, and then our character, Desiree, marries that man in uh, Washington, D.C., but she's fair-skinned and he's dark. And so, and he, and he exacts his rage on her by punching her and pulling her across the floor so she doesn't really belong there. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's like Stella's situation that she doesn't really feel like she belongs inside of her Brentwood um, environment. And then you have uh, the the transgender character, Reese, who doesn't fit in with his environment in El Dorado, Texas. Like, And I think that regardless of race, almost all of us have had um, sort of maybe like painful extended periods where we just didn't really feel like we belong somewhere. Like I know when I went to college being uh, more or less like a country girl, I felt incredibly uncomfortable in New York City. I did not feel like I belonged there. It was too loud. It was too bright. And I felt out of place. So I feel like anybody can relate to the sense of, of not belonging. We, we talked a little bit the other day about how um, that it's this really wonderful, mm-hmm. like kind of matter of fact, a narrative voice that like you totally implicitly trust. And it's really, really accessible. And, and as Maisha was saying, it is everyone all the time is constructing their own identity, which is basically what Desiree and Stella are doing. And they come from this little town where everyone is very, very light-skinned, uh, light-skinned black. And like, if you are not light-skinned, you are a pariah. Right. And I mean, so like even the town where they're from has constructed its own identity. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when <laughs> Stella marries, Desiree marries the blackest guy she can find and Man, Stella marries the whitest guy. The whitest guy. Like, he's yeah. the whitest guy. I'm not sure how many guys were named Blake in the 30s because it feels like a modern white guy name, but it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like, she ends up in a gated community right. in, uh, in a suburb of Los Angeles. So also kind of a constructed identity. She creates this. And I think there are so many layers and so many secondary and tertiary characters who are also creating themselves from the ground up. Yeah. And I think we all do that. And I think that's part of the, the accessibility of this. Yes. That it's not just, Oh, you know, Tara McMillan's way to exhale is a great book for black women. You're like, and then white women go, Oh, I can't read that. Like, yes, you can. Yeah. One, yes, you can. Two, there are so many universal experiences that she hits on in this. It's like, just right. read the damn book. Um, and, and yeah, kind of a testament we, to um, oh, ahead, the, to its universality is I I read just before we came on here it debuted at number one. Did you know that? Did it? Yeah, like it, it debuted at number one. And I mean, oh my goodness, yeah. After books like The Help, you know, and um, American wow. Dirt, I'm I'm happy <laughs> right. to see that Brent Bennett debuting at number one, like the right kind of crossover yes. novel. 
a crossover novel we can believe in. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the term crossover novel to me somehow always kind of sends alarm bells, even subtly, because we were having um, just a brief conversation about Beloved and how, you know, Toni Morrison is very articulate and, or she says just, you just said unapologetically. That was crazy. <laughs> no, but I, I meant unapologetic um, about who she says she's writing to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then when we were saying, you know, Beloved is also a mystery though. So she, she sure, yeah. there must have been, or maybe not must have been, but something about that element was like, okay, this will reach a lot of, like it could become a very popular novel because it's compelling. Well, Britt Bennett, you see her, um, you don't want to say steal, right? You want to say borrowing, you want to say imitating, you want to say um, taking inspiration yeah, from Toni yeah, Morrison. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I yeah. um, when I read the first chapter and Susan hadn't started yet, I said, oh, the first chapter is pure Morrison, it's pure Beloved. And um, to Bennett's credit, there's a couple times where like she directly references Morrison. And, you know, so uh, the character Jude, right. like she's called Tar Baby. Um, Mm -hmm. The character early, um, he says he left without a trace, which is also directly from uh, Beloved. So, you know, she's giving a nod to Morrison, but she's like explicitly acknowledging her at the same time. A tip of the hat. Yeah. We could talk about structure and style a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think this book is a little bit more, like you were saying, accessible. I think when you read Tony, you have to really dive in and it's challenging and you have to sit with it for a long, long time. Her work warrants many readings, many rereadings. Yeah. Um, but for this, it was just like so readable and just I like flew through it. So I guess I'm wondering, yeah, what you thought, um, what observances you made about the structure and the voice. Um, let's go to let's um, go to Susan. I think that what it, what makes it accessible is that like Morrison is very lyrical and very dense. This is written like mm-hmm. a regular commercial novel. I mean, this is, is, you know, straight ahead, really, it is, I mean, it is totally straight ahead commercial novel with a hell of a lot of depth. So like way more than you would expect. It's not a, it could be a beach read. Like you could read it sitting outside at the beach, Mm -hmm. socially distant, six feet apart, at least from everyone else. (laughs) Um, And it still challenges you and you still have to concentrate, but not in the same way. There's not like the verbal gymnastics that Morrison does. It has... What I loved about it was like that matter of fact kind of narrative voice. And Mm -hmm. it's without a lot of the verbal gymnastics, but then she still has like these wonderful, wonderful lines. And I didn't want to mark because this is your copy. (laughs) I couldn't get one because it's like an 18 week waiting list. I know. It's crazy. Yeah, that's really great. God bless her, you know? Yeah. What a great And it's like to have. have. Yeah. So I'm butting in here. So. You made me think of something, Susan. So this book is like the cozy of racism. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because, okay, so she references Morrison in the book, but like part of the reason why, so like our friend, right, um, Dean Pulley, right? So then for Literary Cleveland, yeah. she taught Beloved as a horror story. Why? Because it is. Beloved is scary. It's your story. So like, um, and this is not spoiling because it happens in the first 25% of the book. So then uh, in Vanishing Half, 
when like the father is killed, Britt Bennett doesn't take us to the tree that he's hanging from. She doesn't take us to the hospital where he's shot five times in the head. She said that happened, right? She doesn't keep us there. Whereas Toni Morrison, I'm Beloved was her first novel that I read. Um, I love telling the story. I was taking the bus at the time. I missed my bus because I started that book. It's like Sita, she's washing her <laughs> hair. She looked up a tree and she's like, oh, that's a beautiful tree. Sure does remember, remind me of the time that my friend was hanging from one. Right. I was like, what? <laughs> and like, you know, like when Sita's raped, we spend time with that rape. She lets us mm. know what happened during in that horrible yeah, barn. Whereas like with Britt Bennett, she, she refers, she alludes. I mean, something else that we talked about, like even in um, her locations. So, you know, Brentwood, that's the place where, um, where can I say O.J. Simpson? I mean, he may, he may or may not have actually, he did though. Yeah. Um, kill, um, <laughs> where he killed like Nicole, you know? We're not like, going to debate that right like, now. That's Nicole, another conversation. That's another conversation. <laughs> where Nicole murdered. And her um, but like she doesn't show us like that horror, and of course it's the place of um, yeah. this new thing that's out, like the the Red Summer, the nineteen nineteen riots, and it's obviously the place of the Los Angeles riots. But like she doesn't keep us in that place of fear, even though so much of the story is located in that place. So yeah, that's why I'm calling it the cozy well, of racism because like it's like it's not as bloody as she could make it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and one one thing I was gonna. How their father is killed and also the domestic abuse on Desiree from her, her husband. Yeah. It's often told like through the eyes of children peeking through a yeah. doorway or something like that. So it's filtered. You see the trauma that it inflicts on the children watching this happen to their parents. Like the, mm-hmm. the reader gets the horrific part of the, of the abuse or the murder. And at the same time, she holds back. You see the after effect as opposed to the blood happening. You see the scars after. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, too, just kind of going back to something that Maisha said, a similarity that I see between Morrison and Bennett that I actually just kind of thought of is that their prose, while different, is still very beautiful. Yes. And so they were, I mean, they both describe really grotesque things at points. So that's something uh, for viewers to be aware of. Just, you know, um, there is domestic violence and lynching discussed um not necessarily to the morrison level like maisha was saying um but you know there's horror in it there are horror elements but it's still it's just such beautiful writing that you felt compelled to continue through that line so i think that's something that resonates with me at least um, when i think about how brit employed the structure and the voice um it's very steady but it's not too intimate that it like kind of takes on the character you know, is that your dog? That is my dog wandering around <laughs> carrying one of the cat's toys. Oh, good. <laughs> it's either a cat toy or a sock. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but there's something, I think either that you or Susan said, Maisha, mm-hmm. um, that kind of made me want to go into talking more about identity and how yeah. we're just, I'm just saying Brit and Tony, like they're my friends. <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like, that. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I feel seen and loved by them so I love to just feel like I'm yeah. saying there yeah yeah really it's true yeah so the first thing 
that, I mean, it's a big question, but of course, these are identical twins. The uh, lifeline of the story is Desiree and Stella, who are um, separated for most of the book, but they live very different lives. So um, I think what I will ask first, um, and then we can kind of go into more specifics, um, what does it mean to be white and what does it mean to be black? So how does Bennett construct these ideas um, and these concepts? What do you think she believes are either qualities of the two or how does she characterize people to believe to be qualities of being white or being black? So let me ask, who's ready? <laughs> Who can go to this first? <laughs> it's so easy, right? Yeah, yeah right. I know. It's such an ever. easy question. Identity. Um, Susan. I think I'm struggling, and I'm Susan. I'm I'm about oh. to drop back three and punt this to you. Just a really, <laughs> <laughs> I have your back, my dear. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think part of the reason why Susan and I are kind of like challenged with that question and grappling with it, it's because right. Britt, and I think you mentioned this in your blog, Margie, too. She doesn't really go. She says a few things, right? But she doesn't really go for the easy answers. Yeah. Like oh, there's yeah. a construction of like what is whiteness. But the thing is, when we meet um, later the character Kennedy, Kennedy in sort of her rootlessness and inability to achieve anything um, seems to not really be in, to embody whiteness. Britt really, like she challenges, she teases it out. And with that, uh, Susan, I'll pass to you. Okay. <laughs> and a passion. Yeah. Um, Just take it off. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book was that, because it didn't make me think about what does it mean to be white, because I am. Because you don't, you don't think about it. I, I mean, I think that's one of the big things that I think Stella discovers, mm. is that white people don't think about being white. I mean, I think that is like the heart of privilege, is that you don't have to think about who you are. You just can go through the world feeling free. And there's the first time that she is mistaken for white and she finds it's like freedom. You go, oh my God, I you can go wherever you want to go. And yeah. there was I mean there's this confidence that comes with it, but it's it's just like how you don't realize that you have privilege until it's shown to you. And then you're like, no, I had all these horrible things. Like, no, actually yeah, Kennedy, most of your problems are of your own making, and she still has all these safety nets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she yeah, gets that, bailed out. That generational and wealth. I think exactly, exactly, because, you know, nobody was redlined in her family. I was just going to say, really, and, um, I liked what you said, and was st- when Stella first passes, like, she just wanted to go to the museum, like, on not yeah. Black Day. yeah. Oh, my like, God. It was, yes. it was just, it was not even a big deal. She wanted to go and see some artwork, but only Black people can only go, like, they come um, only one come day a week, the like, yeah. or one day a week. And she was just like, I want to see that work today. Like it was so innocent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's freedom to like, make, freedom. I, I choose. I want to see this today. Freedom. Um, <laughs> I, uh, what I like about this, uh, what Beth, Brit does in this, can we call her Brit and call her Brit too? Um, sure. She's our friend. She doesn't try yeah, to friend. answer what whiteness is or blackness as much as like demonstrate different ways of being white and all of her characters have a lot of depth. I'm going to say Kennedy. I'm still like eh, not crazy about that character okay. um, or how she's drawn, but she doesn't try to answer what it means to be white or what it means to be black, but she demonstrates different ways of being. And I hunt that back to our moderator. I like what Maisha said a lot where she, Britt doesn't draw any fine lines. Cause I think, I don't think she is 
uh, she has set out to say, oh, actually, this is what qualifies a black person to be black, and this is what qualifies, you know? Um, and she just does such a good job of talking about all of the ways, the various different ways that black women especially are oppressed. And also, there are black men in this book, and we haven't really talked about that. Who are the black men in this book? Um, so um, I think another interesting early? thread that we could go early, on. Early, of course, yeah. early. <laughs> early and Sam, Desiree's Reese? husband. Reese? Yeah. Yeah. And Reese, yeah. Um, and it's already out there that Reese is um, a trans man yes. in the book. That uh, so it, did you guys? You um, guys think Reese is black? He yeah, said, she said he, he says several times that yeah, he's black. He is okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. But also, I can find the, the textual evidence. Yeah, <laughs> but also um, like all of the black men in Mallard, in the town that Desiree and Stella grow up in, and I thought it was so interesting and like traumatizing how generational and very similar um, Jude's took a relationship that she has with that one guy um, in oh, the barn. Whatever. Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah. Like where he yeah, is ashamed of her. And what, her. I mean, yeah. And then, but it's, it's so like um, what her mom experiences um, and what Stella experiences too, because Stella had some, should we, are we allowed to swear in this? Stella goes through some, she goes through some shit. And it's just yeah. like, it shows, I think too, what Brit does is just show how. Oh my God, I forgot about that. So play with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. because when I think about why, or one of the main reasons why Stella and Desiree like veered off differently, like besides their um, personality differences, Stella like really internalized that fear and trauma. Like, she had nightmares of getting lynched and pulled out of her bed, like, through her adulthood. Um, and when she and Desiree were working at that, for those white people in that house, yeah. and she was getting raped in the house, and but it was just, like, there's so many things, so many layers um, to, like, her fear that I think, ultimately, a big part of her decision you're you're blowing my mind right now because essentially she well i mean like running with what you said she married the white man to feel safe but she was still feeling like abused by him even though she decided to marry him it's almost like suffocating in a different way because on surface he's the ideal husband yeah she wants for nothing and she's really wealthy and yeah right there's a point in the novel when um you know still is a little restless and she's like i want to do something other than drink wine at 11 in the morning and yeah and be in our pool pool. yeah Yeah. um so she starts to educate herself and you see how her husband reacts and oh yeah that that storyline we've seen it other places she somehow manages to make it new yeah if that makes sense okay so then what i want to say about um vanishing half was in how Brit plays with um, identity. Mm-hmm. It seems like to me what Stella passed on to her daughter. So Stella, who um, passes at white and raises her daughter Kennedy in Brentwood as a blonde hair, blue eyed white girl, um, mm-hmm. what she passes on to her daughter is surreptition, like being a liar. 
Yeah. That's, like that's Interesting. kind of this trait that or she gives her like, daughter. It's something that like haunts their relationship. Yeah. And yeah. also exactly. it plays out in Kennedy's relationships. Like she never fully discloses herself to people. Um, and she's not a particularly nice girl. Um, yeah. And a lot of that yeah. you could say that uh, bleeds over from her relationship with her mother. I mean, I, that's interesting because I, I, I would say that the one thing that Kennedy inherits from her mom is rootlessness. Rootlessness. She yeah. has she has no roots, and she wanders the world pretty much, trying to find herself. Which sounds really cheesy, but she does try to find some sense of herself right. through acting by not being herself. Through acting, but but or just through. Everything. Yeah. I mean, that blew yeah, my mind. That, that, <laughs> talk about constructing an, a new identity every night. Right. Right. And as a mediocre actor. As a mediocre actor. As a soap opera. As a mediocre actor. What you say yeah, he spends right. three months yeah. trapped on the um trapped on the cruise ship. Does that happen? I forget. Wait. Well, yeah. she's um it's her character. Like like Oh yeah. Like her, oh. her soap opera character is like not even a main soap opera character. No, she she's <laughs> Right. She spends eight months, uh, no, eight months trapped, yeah, in a basement prison or something. No, I do think that so, that's yeah. Britt's comment that, like, a a beautiful white girl who's um, intellectually unremarkable can yeah. still live an incredibly comfortable and fun life, right? Interesting. She yeah. goes to Paris. She goes to Rome. She spends a couple of years on yeah. a soap opera. She goes to Manhattan. She Does, does she get an apartment in, like... Venice she or lives something. Washington Heights, I think. Her parents, like that. parents get her the, the the apartment in Venice Beach for like a year. Yeah. Right. Up. See if you can make it, and if not, right. yeah, right, all right. And Margie, your favorite character, Jude. You know, she's living in terrible yeah. circumstances with race, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like she's yeah. she's one Taking moment on away from destitution. And Reese was destitute. Remember the the horrible scenes of like what? Yeah. He experienced he as a transgender person who was homeless in Los Angeles. Again, a lot of sexual abuse. So we talked about just now the parallels between um, Kennedy and Stella. So I, I'm wondering what you guys think about um, Desiree and Jude. Do you want to start us on that one, Margie? I can try. Okay, go for it. I mean, so yes, it's no secret if I've talked to you about this book or if you've read the review that I wrote... I think that Jude is the heart of this novel. She is an incredibly formed character um, and I connected with her a lot. And because I think maybe what's difficult about this question, so I'm sorry for asking, is maybe I don't have the best sense of Desiree as a character because she's so far back in my mind. But I do, I mean, I think the way that guilt and fear infiltrated their ways into Stella's life versus Desiree's life are very different. Stella, of course, passes due to a lot of things, but I'm, yeah, I talked earlier a little bit about how I think fear really played a big part in her decision and her wanting to be liberated, but also her being haunted by her past. And for Desiree, I think she feels very guilty. Um, So yeah, one of the things that is said early on is that she went on to marry the blackest man she could find. And, you know, this town that they grow up in, Mallard, is founded in the belief that the lighter you are, the better you are. But it's all, it's a town full of black people still, though. It's, you know, they're not, um, it's not integrated. It's um, its own destinationless also. 
um, well, actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember it being Desiree's idea to run away. Yes. Is that correct? That's correct. Initially, and then it's Stella. One thing I was just thinking about, and it's weird, is this is a half-baked thought, but mm-hmm. I feel like in some ways, I mean, Desiree, I feel bad for because she kind of gets left holding the bag. She goes back, and then she takes care of her mother, and she takes care of the diner, and she takes care of everybody. But right. Stella was always the smart one, and Desiree was the one who wanted to act and travel and everything else, and they it's like they end up with each other's daughters because... Desiree has the daughter who is studious and studies and goes to school. And, and that's Stella. And yeah, then, and then Stella has the, Woo, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, yeah. And it's funny because they, like, they almost end up with like, the daughters that were meant for the other one. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because when you said that Desiree, um, she's just so giving. I mean, even just like into her relationship um, her friendship, her bond with Reese. Maisha, do you have any? I have to admit um, that I didn't really, I didn't connect with the second generation. I didn't feel myself emos- emotionally invested with Jude or with Kennedy as a reader. I didn't, I didn't connect to those two. I was, um, I did, I did connect to Stella though. I did. Um, I can't, pass as um white but it did just kind of remind me of you know when you grow up in um a majority white culture and some of your best friends are white people um about how you still feel like an outsider sometime and so then um what was the name of the um you know how the scene in Brentwood where the black family moved in does anybody remember the name of the um of the woman next door. What was it? What was her name? Like Keisha or do you remember her name? Loretta. 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 Yeah. The, 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 the black woman across the street is Loretta. And that part of the story, Stella starts living in her um, white gated community that she starts having to live next door to a black woman. And they develop what is sort of like a secretive, they're like secretive buddies, right? Like a very sort of like quiet relationship that like exists in its own space. Like her husband doesn't know about it. The other white women in the neighborhood don't know about it. And I related to that story, both from the standpoint of Stella and also as Loretta, because I've had those friendships where like, it was a meaningful friendship and we were friends, but I understood that I, when she was like with her white friends, I certainly wouldn't be invited. I think when we were like prepping for this and talking and having conversations about it, um, we we talked a lot about how part of the reason why it's such a good book is that Brett Bennett challenges us, us about things that we never questioned. Right. It makes you rethink mm-hmm. the things that yeah. you just kind of took at face value. I mean, I can tell you for me growing up shadism, I just took it at face value. Right. I didn't really, I didn't really think about the criticism that fair skinned people got. I didn't really think about the criticism that super dark skinned people got. It was just the way that it was. And I shrugged my shoulders and kept it moving. Um, mm-hmm. And, and similarly with this relationship with um, Stella and Loretta, I had white girlfriends who I hung out with and we had an amazing time, but I understood that when they were going to a party that I wasn't going to be invited. And it just like, it didn't at the time, you know, it's, it just wasn't, 
it wasn't trauma. It's just the way it was. It's not traumatic if you think it's normal. Or if you've been told that it's normal and yeah. this is what you're supposed to accept, even though that's horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there's still the point in the book where Loretta's daughter and Kennedy are playing. And Kennedy yeah. calls Loretta's daughter the N-word. And Loretta gets mad, you know? Yeah. She's like, uh-uh, no more of this. And they don't see each other anymore for a while. And so uh, there's definitely a sense that that ain't right. Um, but definitely I understand, like, how ingrained some things are. Because it's a generational novel, you know, it ends in the 90s, um, how differently things change. Um, and how we see through Kennedy's eyes, um, like, her kind of questioning her identity, too. Not as outwardly or explicitly as one might. I don't know. Like, am I lying? Or, like, what am I doing? Anyway. Right. There's, I mean, there's just so much to talk about. And yeah. we've had multiple hour, mo- like, two-hour conversations <laughs> yeah. on this. And it's just so nuanced. And, yeah, the more distance I have had away from closing the book's final pages, the more I have liked it, honestly. I think it's definitely one that, like, grows. And you can you just think about so many things um, that you didn't think about when you were absorbed in its pages. Hey, yes, thank, thank you. you guys for tuning in. For checking out our convo on the and book. Margie, the thank you wild. for organizing this. Thank you <laughs> yes. for asking us both thank to read you. this novel. It was really, it was wonderful. And was one of those really engaging reads where like now, like the characters and also the, the issues raised by the book kind of keep, you know, clicking around in my head when I'm yes. doing other things. Yeah, okay, yeah. Right? It, it, yeah, it's, it, 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 read it, read it, read it with a friend and talk to them about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, one really quick thing. Oh, go ahead, Maisha. So the reason why I was all skeptical when you said read it was I thought it was going to be one of those like really dumb, tragic mulatto stories. And like, it wasn't. Me too. That's I'm why like, I, I, I want to read that. So <laughs> I was telling Susan, um, I think sometime last week, um, that I had a complicated relationship with this book at first because when yes. I started reading like the first 50 or so pages, I was just so cautious um, and nervous, like for me as a reader, like identifying with these characters. And I was afraid that it was just going to turn into that again, but it wasn't, it was, it wasn't incredible. It just really proves like how just race, racism infiltrates everything and it's poisonous. And like, there's really like no escaping it unless we like get to the root of the problem. Um, so it's just, yeah. Anyway, that's, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I just opened the door to another conversation. So <laughs> yeah. Close that up. Great. Um, and my recommendation is why haven't you read it yet? Like, really? Yeah. yeah. But support black art. authors. Buy this book. You can buy we'll it now. Get it again. Yes, you can buy it now. <laughs> yeah. This was, this was very fun. It was, it felt like a nice, like, Juneteenth celebration. And during this week, it was very timely conversation. Um, and I had, and always have had a great time talking to y'all. So yay, you love you, Mark. Yay, thank you for letting me be part of this. <laughs> yes, thank you for uh, joining. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. 
you can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com, with specific links to the books discussed in this episode included in the episode description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800, or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.